So each evening here at the Forest Refuge, before a Dhamma talk, we do that chanting together. And perhaps for some of you, it's a daily part of your practice, potentially and quite likely very full, very rich, very meaningful. But for others, perhaps it's a bit foreign, a bit unfamiliar. Maybe there's uncertainty about it. Sometimes just the, the form and uh, different structure of our practice can remind us of other religious training that we've had in our lives and those forms. And maybe there's some sense of dissonance with it because it reminds us of other times, other places, other ways that we might not have felt connected with what we were doing. And then for some of us, even though we understand the meaning of the chanting that we're doing and theoretically agree with it, are resonant with it, are we really awake to it? Are we really connecting with it when we're chanting? Is it alive for us? This is in part, or this is what I would like to talk about tonight, are the three refuges, a part of that chanting that we do, taking the refuges and precepts together. But before I go on to the refuges, I also wanted to speak a bit about bowing. Maybe some of you bow when you come into the hall and it has meaning for you. Maybe for others, again, it's something that might be unfamiliar, kind of foreign. Maybe you're curious about it or maybe resistant to it. Sometimes coming into the hall, for some of us, I know for myself, turning toward the Buddha image and bowing is very much a gesture of respect for this process that we're engaged in here together and respect for those noble intentions that we have in coming to practice. Some of us may come to our meditation cushion and bow three times before we sit in formal practice. And each one of those bows might be bowing to the three refuges. So taking, recommitting to those three refuges with a bow. I know for myself, it took a little while to really start to feel like it was something I could relate to. And so there are a couple of different aspects also to the bowing that I'd like to share that have been uh, very resonant for me. And one is just that in that motion, that shape that the body takes in bowing, 
there's a way in which it can be seen or understood or felt to be a form of surrender. And in, even in bowing the head, a surrender of the thinking mind, a surrender of the egoic structure to the heart, to intuitive knowing, to the potential of opening to our experience. And then in bowing down, touching our heads to the floor. There's something in that for me, again, about surrender and a sense of offering oneself, the whole of oneself, as fully as possible to this experience, to what we're doing here. Some years back, when I was traveling briefly in India with some friends from IMS, I had the good fortune of meeting a very lovely uh, woman, a very uh, dedicated practitioner, a very powerful uh, presence and strong teacher, Deepama. And she was all heart. She was like an embodiment of metta. Just being in her presence, it was very palpable. And as I was thinking about these reflections about bowing, I was reminded of something that Joseph Goldstein said once about watching Deepama bow to a Buddha image. And he said it was like love bowing to love. So refuge, this is really what I want to focus on in this next period of time. Here we are at this place that's called the forest refuge. And it is quite a lovely refuge, a refuge from busyness, from the demands of our lives, a refuge from work that we may have to do in our lives, a refuge from many forms of distraction. A few years ago, or maybe just a couple years ago, uh, my husband, who's a builder, was working down the hill at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, building uh, an addition there. And He was on the phone on this particular day speaking with uh, a delivery person from a lumber yard or something like that who was going to be coming with a big truck and uh, a delivery of building supplies. So he was checking with them to make sure they understood where they were going because Barry's a little out of the way. But the fellow said yes, that he knew just where it was because he had uh, been here. He said, Yes, I've been to that other place, the forest refugees. (laughs) And he came home and told me that this guy (laughs) 
said he'd been to the forest refugees. <laughs> you know, as I was thinking about that earlier, I thought it's maybe not so far from the truth. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> Because if you think about a refugee, really, you know, it's someone sort of leaving home and seeking safety, seeking shelter, looking for a safe place for protection. The trouble is, uh, in terms of what we're seeking, wherever we go, (laughs) there we are. (laughs) So we kind of bring the trouble with us. So what is our shelter? What is our safety? What is our protection? Taking refuge means finding what is truly reliable, what's truly dependable, and then offering ourselves or placing our hearts there with what's truly reliable. Usually, we look for that sense of safety in a lot of places that can't ultimately provide it. Things like our homes, our jobs, our bank accounts, our health. These are all important things in our lives, but on the ultimate level, on a deeper level, not truly reliable because they're subject to change. And if we're holding on, if we're depending on them to stay as they are, we'll suffer. The Buddha named uh, four pairs, four opposites, as places that we, we do this. We sort of seek the positive side and try to avoid the negative. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Where it's a deep, deep habit to go for the, <laughs> the, the positive side of each of those equations and to try to avoid the other when they change. So taking refuge, really finding refuge, connecting with that, it might not have... Uh, a lot of meaning for us at first in practice. But it's something that develops, that ripens, that matures through our own experience. So the first of the refuges, taking refuge in the Buddha. What does this mean? What is this meant to mean? The Buddha's not actually here with us. So how can we take refuge in the Buddha? Quite often in the places where we practice, 
there are lovely Buddha images, like the one behind me right now. And you might have noticed that, at least in this tradition, the Buddha isn't usually depicted sort of with a furrowed brow, you know, or looking anxious, or <laughs> wagging a finger <laughs> of judgment or blame. That's not the image, and that's intentional. The image is one of composure, serenity, alertness, The image is not one where the Buddha is lost either in ecstasy or in despair. It's very steady, calm looking. So when we bow, it's really not to the statue, to that image. It's not to the actual being who's not here with us. It's it's to those qualities that the image represents and that each of us has in ourselves already. So it can also be a reminder or an acknowledgement of those qualities or of one's intention to recognize those qualities in oneself or to align with those qualities in oneself. It's probably very different for each one of us. And I can just say that for myself, this took a little getting used to when I first came to practice. As soon as I heard the teachings, they felt very resonant for me very alive, very familiar in a way like home. But then there were these other pieces like bowing and chanting and taking refuge in the Buddha. The way I was raised was uh, as agnostic. And as a kid, I didn't even really know what that meant. But you know when you're a kid and you're at school and the other kids are saying what religion they are and they ask you, and so I remember coming home from grammar school and saying, Mom, what religion am I? What do I tell them? And she said, tell them you're agnostic. <laughs> I said, what does that mean? She said, well, it means you believe in something, but you don't know what it is. <laughs> and I thought, oh, all right. <laughs> and I was also raised with a very uh, healthy dose of skepticism about religion in general. But because I felt so comfortable with this practice from the start, from the way it's presented, with the emphasis really on independence, on seeing for oneself, on not taking anyone's word for it, not the Buddha's, not our teachers, our elders, our peers, but looking for ourselves, taking that leap into really looking and trying 
what's being suggested, and then seeing. Does it lead to greater ease? Does it help in alleviating suffering? So because of that, I felt open to exploring what it would mean, what it would really mean to take refuge in the Buddha. In the first years, I have to say that when I would bow in a meditation hall, really what I was focused on was the flowers. (laughs) Because for me, the beauty of the natural world has always been a certain form of refuge, a place that I found a certain kind of safety from sort of chaos or discomfort at home. So I would feel that resonance with the flowers, and I would bow. And I have to say that, I don't know about you, but I love this rock. (laughs) So it feels like such a gift also, you know, in bowing to this lovely Buddha image here, that it's supported by this beautiful rock that is from this land, that perhaps from this very spot, I think, that it was built around the rock. (laughs) Um, So it's okay, you know, it's actually, to me, the rock is also representative of positive aspects like weathering, just being there through all of it, rain and snow and seasons and years and having a building built around you and then holding a Buddha image, supporting a Buddha image, and sitting here with all of us. <laughs> so over time, for me, in my practice of bowing, of reflecting on what it means to take refuge in the Buddha, a shift really happened. And it's a powerful thing, an image. There's a certain archetypal quality to the Buddha image. And again, that it's a representation of what exists within each of us. The shift for me uh, became clear at a couple different points that it had really uh, sunk in on deeper levels. And one of those times um, was a time when I was dealing with a very difficult family situation. I was already living here uh, on staff at the meditation center next door. And I was called back to my childhood home to help out with just a really difficult situation with my mother, who was uh, very ill at the time. And... It required a lot of courage, and uh, I just didn't know if I was going to be able to help. And I spent a sleepless night uh, worrying. (laughs) How was I going to be able to get my mother the help she needed? And just not seeing the way. And at a certain point in the morning, just before dawn, I fell asleep. And I slept for only a very short period of time. And during that brief period of sleeping, I had a very powerful dream. 
in which I was sitting in the meditation hall of the retreat center next door where I had done all of my long periods of practice. And I was sitting in the front row facing the Buddha. And the room was filled with other people sitting. And we were all sitting uh, with a certain gesture, a hand gesture like this, one hand raised up. And I think perhaps it was a gesture I had seen uh, in Buddha images before. If so, I didn't remember it at the time because even when I woke up, I didn't know what that gesture meant. Um, But just that dream of sitting, being in the hall in front of the Buddha and with a room full of other people practicing was so pivotal Maybe it was also just the sleep, you know, (laughs) getting a few minutes of rest. But I woke from the dream, and I felt that something had shifted. I was no longer kind of paralyzed by my worry and my uncertainty about how to proceed and how to help. And the story had a good ending. I was able to uh, get my mom into the hospital that day, and she got the help that she needed. And... You know, things went on in a slightly better way for her. But it was so interesting that my mind, while asleep, called up that powerful image of sitting in front of a Buddha with other people and that it helped. It was a deep uh, reconnection. So what the Buddha image most represents is knowing. It's said that the Buddha is called the one who knows or that which knows. Personally, I like that which knows a little bit better because it reminds me that knowing is a process, it's a verb, it's an experience, and not something so helpful for me to identify with. Because if I think that there are moments in which I am the knower, then there are all those other moments (laughs) when I forget, when I'm lost, when there's confusion, resistance, fear, anger, or judgment. But knowing encompasses all of that. Knowing sees clearly. And we all have this ability. This knowing is within each of us. So much of our practice is seeing how it's obscured, or where else we're looking, or how we're identified, and letting go of that, and coming back to the knowing. So it's very much taking refuge in the knowing, not what is known. So it's not important. We can be knowing anger, fear, resistance. And that's a refuge to know, 
to see it clearly. Taking refuge in the Buddha is also taking refuge in that fullness of presence, in these qualities that a Buddha represents, such as fearlessness, that deep, courageous willingness to look, to know what is arising. Qualities of love, of compassion, So this knowing, again, it's a compassionate knowing. It's not a harsh, it's not wagging the finger in judgment. It's clarity. This is something that's reliable. This is something that we can place our hearts on, this knowing is seeing clearly. The second refuge, refuge in the Dhamma. This is one that I found much more uh, accessible right away. The Dhamma is the truth or the way things are. There's a teaching that says, who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. Who sees the Dhamma, sees the Buddha. So the mind that knows sees the way things are. And for me, this was an easier one to connect with because as long as I can remember, I've had a strong... uh, love for the truth, although at first I wouldn't necessarily call it love for the truth. (laughs) I'd call it more need for the truth. Because the family in which I was raised, uh, because there was alcohol and mental illness, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was also love and care and warmth and friendliness. But because of those other factors, there was a lot of confusion. So truth was very important for me. It was a kind of life raft as a kid. My poor brother, (laughs) I remember when he would get into scrapes and troubles and things, and he didn't quite have the same relationship with truth (laughs) as I did for whatever reason. And I would just say, just don't tell me. (laughs) Because I'm not going to tell, but I just can't lie if I'm asked. So don't tell me. So there was this kind of desperate need for an external truth. I remember really clearly uh, at times when, this was during the 50s and 60s, Because my mother had a mental illness, and because at that time, mental illness still had carried a very strong stigma, it was not talked about, which is kind of extraordinary (laughs) when someone leaves their home to be hospitalized for care for it, that it's not discussed, it's not talked about. 
So I remember this one time when my mom was in the hospital and I was staying with her sister, my aunt, who in many ways has been a benefactor for me throughout my life. And it was something so simple, but it stood out. And I remember it tangibly to this day. And that was that she talked about what was going on. She answered questions. She brought it up. She just talked about it. I was so grateful. It was so powerful to just have someone willing to say what was going on, to speak the truth. So this is a kind of external uh, truth that I found to be very important. So when I understood the teachings as aligning with the truth, with the way things are, seeing the truth, knowing the truth, my heart was so happy. That made so much sense to me. That felt safe and reliable. Part of the truth is that things change. This can be something that we feel some resistance to, even after years of practice. (laughs) It's amazing. We know it. We all know it. It's a basic truth. But it's really kind of challenging to keep opening to in so many different ways, on so many different levels. So just a little example. We look for certain states sometimes in practice, certain ways of experiencing how things are. And I think when, for some of us, and maybe for many, when we first come to practice and we first learn to really pay attention to something, even something incredibly simple, it takes on a whole new uh, depth. So I was thinking of an example, and I was thinking of like the first time practicing eating meditation. Just something really basic. I don't know about you, but did you ever do the the raisin meditation? (laughs) The eating meditation where one really looks at a raisin. So for me, and I think for a lot of people, it's kind of revelatory at first. You know, this little shriveled up, wrinkled bit of sweetness suddenly sort of explodes into a world of sensory experience when we're paying attention. And unless you don't like raisins, you know, it's pleasant. We like that. So I know for myself, having had those kinds of experiences early in practice, I spent a whole other phase of my practice sort of measuring everything against that looking for that kind of, wow, (laughs) intensity of experience. And it just doesn't stay that way. 
So in really taking refuge, in really finding what's reliable, what's dependable in the truth, we have to be very willing to open to both pleasant and unpleasant and neutral when the raisin's just a raisin again or when the tasks, the even the sitting and the walking at times can just feel kind of flat in a way if we're looking for a charge or, you know, effortful like a struggle. We learn to trust that truth of change, that seeing clearly just how things are in this moment, in this moment, in this moment, rather than our expectations, our hopes, of how they might be, how we'd like them to be. I found this little quotation. It's Simone de Beauvoir. She said, I tore myself away from the safe comfort of certainties through my love for the truth, and truth rewarded me. I tore myself away from the safe comfort of certainties. We'd so like for things to be certain. But truth rewards us. The connection with how things really are rewards us. That shift that happens in practice from those early kind of awakenings to really paying attention and having the world kind of open up, you know, in the way that a raisin becomes a world of experience in our actually tasting it. It reminds me that shift back to ordinariness in a way of the transition in a long, stable, loving relationship. So maybe that shift from romantic love, where it's exciting and charged and has that brightness, that energy, to a more mature love, which has a depth, which has the qualities of acceptance, the qualities of generosity in caring for another. That shift also brought to mind, but I'm not going to sing it for you, (laughs) an old Donovan song from years ago. (laughs) I'll just leave you with that. (laughs) But the quotation that I found um, 
that I think the so I don't know I think the song came from this, this quotation is from uh, Chogyam Trungpa, the book Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. He said, when we first experience true ordinariness, it is something very extraordinarily ordinary. So much so that we would say that mountains are not mountains anymore, or streams, streams anymore, because we see them as so ordinary, so precise, so as they are. This extraordinariness derives from the experience of discovery. But eventually, this superordinariness, this precision, becomes an everyday event, something we live with all the time, truly ordinary. And we are back where we started. The mountains are mountains, and the streams are streams. Then we can relax. So taking refuge in the Dhamma, in the truth, in the way things are, The third refuge, taking refuge in the Sangha. Traditionally, this meant the Sangha of nuns and monks or awakened beings, beings who were knowing the truth, seeing clearly. It's also more broadly understood for us as the community of practitioners, or those dedicated to knowing, to aligning with, rather than resisting, the truth. And you may feel it here, just the tremendous support of sitting with others. It's very supportive to be in the company of like-minded people. I was on the staff of the meditation center next door back in the mid-80s, 86 to 88. And I remember during those years when the retreat center was my home, when I would take trips back to my childhood home, and then return to the center. It was so striking to me that I was coming back to this place that felt like a deva realm. It felt like this gathering of angelic beings. Mind you, it wasn't. (laughs) But just in that intentionality of us all being there and inclining toward truth, inclining toward knowing. Such a support, such a blessing. Others aiming towards skillful speech, skillful actions. 
even though we don't always succeed. Still, it's so supportive to aim together and to be upheld by others aiming in such skillful directions. So in a way that the community of of practitioners or those dedicated to knowing, it's a kind of external, tangible sangha. When I think about the qualities taking refuge in sangha internally, what that means. It's that kind of nobility of intending to be virtuous, practicing skillful action, skillful speech, practicing seeing clearly. I think that sometimes there can be um, a distortion of this understanding of sangha as a refuge if we hold ourselves and our fellow practitioners separate from others, others who aren't on this path, others who whose lives are unfolding in different ways. So I like also to broaden the sense of Sangha in my understanding, to have it be very broad, very inclusive, really including all beings. All of us share a wish to be happy. to be peaceful. Just the other day, a few days ago, I was in a market store, grocery store, in a town nearby. And as happens when one is out among other people, I saw something and heard something that was kind of painful. It was simple. But it was uh, a mom, I assumed it was a mom, but two women, one of which I think was the mom, and a a young girl. And the women were busy and kind of looked a little harried, a little stressed, and not really paying close attention to this very young girl. And the next thing they knew, there were broken eggs on the floor in the market. And it was hard to witness what happened. It wasn't, you know, child abuse, (laughs) Um, but it was harsh and angry and blaming and just the harshness of the energy toward the child. And then I could feel, you know, that it was difficult to open to it. I felt a little judgment, a little resistance a little separate. And then later, that very same day, 
I was at a lake. Uh, there's a lake just near my house where I live. And I often go there in the summertime to swim. So I was at the lake, and there were a lot of people there because it was a hot day. And again, I was privy to an intimate exchange between two people, a couple, a man and a woman, who were really standing only about three feet (laughs) away from me and having a very difficult, angry exchange, blaming and just a lot of frustration and accusation. So much suffering. And again, I think because there were two incidences close together on the same day, it really made me pay attention to just the subtle separateness that I was feeling, that resistance to seeing clearly, which in that moment, seeing clearly was seeing the suffering. So when I noticed, it was also seeing the resistance, my own resistance, my own judgment. And when I was able to see that, to open to that, my heart was more open and there was a compassionate response. But it took seeing the separation that I was feeling seeing the resistance and the judgment. So while angry people, (laughs) people not seeing clearly, people not being kind, are not our refuge, for me, it's also important to not exclude them to know that those very same qualities are in me. And if I'm not mindful, if I'm not aware, I could find myself in the same position, acting unskillfully. So we take refuge in the Sangha, in the company of others, dedicated to seeing clearly, dedicated to responding compassionately so that these qualities can stay awake and alive and supported in us. And over time, as one reflects on these refuges, takes them to heart, considers them, finds a relationship with them for oneself, they take hold. They become more and more that reliable home. This is the the second story of how uh, the shift took place for me from finding this kind of foreign to suddenly having it arise quite spontaneously, the first being that dream at my mother's house. There was another time when I was, again, in the grips of fear. I guess that's when the refuges (laughs) naturally pop up for me. And this was on a bus. I can't honestly remember at this point if it was India or Nepal, but it was a mountainous, precarious, scary, (laughs) 
bus ride, crowded bus, where when you looked over the edge, you actually did see cars down there <laughs> that had gone off the edge. Truly, I felt like I didn't know if I was going to make it. But I also knew that I wasn't about to like have a fit and try to convince the bus driver to stop the bus and let me off or you know, give him some encouragement to drive more safely. So I just kind of surrendered to the process. And what I found was that suddenly I started doing the refuges in my mind. Taking, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha. And it was so interesting because it happened so spontaneously. And yet what I saw was that it really helped. It really just helped shift my perspective. It helped put me in touch with much larger, deeper truths than that experience of my little self on that scary bus. It helped open me up. It helped my heart to rest. So within these refuges, in a way, really is the whole of the path. See, take a look for yourself. See what you find. I'd like to end with sharing a simile that describes these three refuges. There are many. This is one. The Buddha, or that which knows, is like the sun, whose appearance in the world is like the sun rising over the horizon. The Dhamma, the way things are, is like the sun's rays spreading over the earth, dispelling darkness and cold, bringing warmth and light. And the Sangha, others on the path, are like those beings for whom the darkness of night has been dispelled. They go about their affairs enjoying the warmth and the light of the sun. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.